Thank you for listening to the Grace Chapel Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by our guest speaker, Rod Hall. For more information about our church, visit our website at gracechapel.cc or follow us on social media at Grace Chapel Ohio. This morning we're looking at the idea of our first love and what Jesus in a letter to the Ephesians in the church of Ephesus has found in the book of Revelation, what he talks about regarding the first love. Now, I'm going to do something a little bit bold today for three reasons. It's bold for three reasons. One, my wife's not in here. Two, my parents are in here. Three, her dad's in here. So (laughs) I'm going to tell a little story about my first love. And 34 years ago, uh, we were having a party at my parents' house, a singles party, a swim party. Mom and dad have had a pool for a long time, and I was out in the pool area uh, getting some stuff arranged, and, you know, I wasn't dating anybody or anything, and uh, some of the people started coming in and coming into the pool area, and I uh, stopped what I was doing. I looked up, and I saw this pair of tan legs. Well, that started the whole roller coaster ride to where we are now, 32 years of marriage later. Uh, my first love is still my only love. And, you know, that's something that God has blessed us with. Now, you might be saying, why are you telling that ridiculous story? Well, I think marriage can be a picture of the Christian life commitment to God. You know, the church is known as the bride. And Jesus is the bridegroom. And so throughout the New Testament especially, we see this image of marriage being used to show the commitment of the followers of Christ to Christ. In other words, our first love. And so today, as we look at this idea of first love, we're going to see not only corporately as a body of believers, but also individually as sons and daughters of Christ, how are we doing with clinging to that first love? So let's go ahead and pray, then we'll get into the book of Revelation. Our Father, I thank you for the blessings that you have poured out on us. I thank you for this worship time that we've had. I I praise you for friends and family here at the church and for those who are willing to help out and do special things with the teens like boating and, and so forth and Lord, I just now ask that your Holy Spirit would come upon us. Father, help us to look at this letter from your son Jesus, written to John for this church in Ephesus. How can we learn what it means to really hold on to and not abandon our first love? Help us to perhaps reignite those passions for you that maybe we once had, but perhaps have sometimes cooled off a little bit. And Father, that when we leave here this morning, that we might be a little bit different than when we first came in. All right, so Revelation chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Pastor Kurt's been doing an excellent series in Daniel, and that's often called the Revelation of the Old Testament. So Revelation chapter 2 Uh, We're not really looking at end times. We're not looking at prophecy. We're looking at what does Jesus have to say 
to this church? How does it apply to us? And, you know, these uh, letters that uh, were sent to the seven churches in Asia, they all have a same basic pattern in a way. Not all of them, but most of them. Jesus has a commendation. Hey, you're doing this well. Way to go. Then he has a condemnation. Hey, this is something that you need to fix. And then he offers up how we should change that. So we have a commendation, a condemnation, and then a change. And so this first letter we're going to look at, the only letter today really, is sent to the church in Ephesus. And it starts out in verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Now, this angel, uh, angel means messenger. So it could be literally an angel. It could be perhaps an elder of this church. It could be a pastor of this church. We, we don't know for sure. But the one thing that we do know is that the Ephesians, this church in Ephesus, was the, the target. They're the audience for this letter. In fact, in a matter, we, we are as well. It's written to them and it's written to us. Now, if you know anything about this church in Ephesus, uh, it, it was kind of famous. You know, Paul was there for three years. Uh, Priscilla was there. Aquila was there. Timothy was there. Possibly John had ministered there. Apollos had ministered there. In other words, this church had a strong foundation. They had good teaching. They knew what proper doctrine was. The problem is <laughs> they lived in an area that was rife with paganism and materialism and just about anything goes. In fact, the temple for Diana, who was a Greek goddess of fertility, considered this temple considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was also located in Ephesus. Now, you might say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, the activities that went on in this temple honoring Diana, well, they had prostitutes there, okay? So if that tells you anything about the, the kind of uh, ceremonies and so forth going on in this pagan place, you, you can imagine if our church was just surrounded by uh, pagan worshipers and whatever else, how we might feel just kind of encroached by this hedonistic lifestyle. And so Jesus is sending this letter to the church in Ephesus because he wants to commend them on how they're handling this, this weight of this pagan culture all around them. So let's continue with verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, this is talking about Jesus. Jesus is the one who holds the seven stars. Now, what, what does he mean by that? Well, the seven stars here are these seven churches. And the encouraging thing to think about is that Jesus holds them in his hand. He's not letting them loose. He's not watching from a distance. He is actively involved. He has a strong grasp on them, and he holds them securely. And so Jesus is the one who holds the seven stars and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, the Ephesian church, 
Some people think it was a bunch of house churches. Uh, I don't think they were in the Ephesian high school, okay? More than likely, it was several groups in Ephesus that met, and perhaps each one had their own elder or their own pastor. We, We don't really know for sure, but I can imagine if I was in one of those churches and I'm sitting down at a worship service and all of a sudden the speaker, the elder, the pastor, he reads us a letter that is directly from Jesus Christ. I mean, I, I, I'm going to think, wow, this is special. This is, I better have you know, my ears on. I better listen up here because that is exactly what is going on. So we're in Ephesus We're in these churches. It is in a city that's known for its commerce as well as the paganism. And the church has been doing a phenomenal job, as we're about to see here. As Jesus says in verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So, you know, when we cling to our first love, one of the things that we notice here, one of the first behaviors that stands out is that we work out our salvation. The Ephesians were known for their work. They were known for their deeds. They were known as people who could discern false teaching from true teaching. And Jesus has his finger on the pulse of this church. He knows when it is thriving. He knows when a church is is straying. He knows when a church is starting to lose its, its influence. But here, he starts his message to the church in Ephesus with an attaboy. You say, hey, way to go, guys. You guys are doing a great job. You're working hard. People see your works. You're working out your salvation. You are not allowing false prophets to come in and and to attack the flock. And so the church was rock solid in their labor, and they pursued doctrinal purity. They knew the scripture, and they knew how to apply it and how to guard against false teachers. They, They had a backbone. And, you know, across our nation, even across the world, we see churches that basically allow any kind of teaching to come in as long as it tickles the ears of the congregation. Well, that was not going on here in Ephesus. You know, by all outward appearances, this was a solid church. This would have been a church that somebody might have written books about, about how to grow a church. Uh, They worked hard. They had great outreach. And they protected the integrity of the gospel. So, I mean, lots of good stuff going here. Jesus commends them and, you know, says, hey, Keep going. Well, you know, as a church and as an individual, my first priority, our first priority really needs to be to please God. You know, we serve our neighbors. We do works of goodness to other people. We reach out to the lost. Hopefully we love and encourage one another in the body. But all of these actions these works, these toils, as Christ says, they should spring forth from our first love, our love of Jesus Christ. And if I am doing things just for, for looks, 
just for accolades. You know, in the Bible tells us I'm nothing more than a resounding gong. I'm just making noise. But if these works that Jesus talked about, my toil, my patient endurance, if that is springing forth from a genuine, passionate love of Christ, then I am doing what God has called me to do. It has to come from within, which is that spark that the Holy Spirit gives us. You know, when we want to please God, we stop trying to please self. When we want to please God, we stop playing that comparison game. You know, way too many people, way too many organizations, too many churches, they look left, they look right, they see what others are doing, they're measuring themselves according to those standards. But God is saying, look, you don't need to look left or right. All you need to do is look at me. I will give you the standard. And that standard is that first love that we had for Jesus Christ. You know, think back to uh, the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 2. It'll be on the screen up here behind me. And he encouraged the Philippians and uh, to allow their works to be a pleasing offering to God. Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, a lot of people have taken those words and twisted them a little bit. Look, Paul is not saying you have to earn your salvation. He's not saying you have to work for your salvation. We know that salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But what he is saying is, look, work out your own salvation. In other words, don't worry about what somebody else is doing. Don't compare yourself to what this person is doing. Focus on Christ. Allow Christ's love to fill you. And in doing so, those good deeds, those toils, those works are going to spring out naturally from your love for Jesus. So when this hope of of Jesus is inside me, a natural, automatic, and continual manifestation of that hope should be seen in these works that Christ is commending the church in Ephesus for. So we have a commendation. Now we know what's coming up in a little bit here, and that's that condemnation. But first we see in verse 3, he continues with his commendation. He says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So the second behavior that we see when we cling to our first love is that we endure hardship. We endure hardship. Now, I would venture to say, everybody sitting here this morning, you've had some kind of hardship that you've gone through, either this week, this month, this past year, some point or another, you have endured hardship. We all do. You know, nobody goes into a relationship with Christ thinking that everything's going to be a rose garden after that. No, we are going to have problems. The question is, is what do we do when these hardships come about? You know, it can be discouraging when you're trying to shine your light for Christ in a dark world, but, you know, you feel like you're constantly being attacked. 
well, Jesus is here. He's with us. He's inside of you. His Holy Spirit is guiding you, and he is going to help you through those times. Look what Paul wrote to the book, in the book of Romans here. He says in chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So when we cling to our first love, that allows us to endure hardships. And, and we're promised that these hardships are going to produce in us something that's better than what we already have. It is going to happen. There will be suffering. There will be difficulty. But the good news is, is that God is going to use it in a wonderful way to bring about the change he wants to see in us. Now, look, I don't know if that is going to happen the day after, a month after, when. But the Bible promises us that when we go through hardships, it's going to produce endurance, and it's going to produce character, and that character will produce hope. So the church in Ephesus has got some things going on that's really good. I mean, they are working hard. They, they are going out to the community. Uh, they are helping people out. Their, their toils are well known. They are lockstep with doctrine. They're doing everything right in regards to uh, enduring hardship. But in verse 4, now we're going to see that condemnation. So pay close attention to verse 4 here. It says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Boy, <laughs> you know, I, I imagine those people in that house church, uh, they're sitting there and, you know, they just got, they got this letter from Jesus and Jesus got done telling them, hey, your, your works, your toils, way to go. You're doing a great job. I mean, the Savior of the world, the creator of the universe is giving them uh, exhortation. And then he goes on to say, you know, I know you're enduring. I know you're going through hardship, but keep at it. And then we get this condemnation. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You know, the opposite of that is passionately living for Jesus. That's our third behavior this morning. Someone who clings to their first love is passionately living for Christ. And so you got to figure, you know, the, the church here, the, the Ephesians, are probably thinking, while Jesus, we're doing all the right stuff, we're, we're working hard, we, we are enduring hardship, we, we know false teaching from true teaching, what do you mean we've abandoned our first love? Well, the fact of the matter is, Christianity isn't just checking off a list of boxes. You know, I mean, okay, if I'm going to be a good Christian... I need to go to church every day. I need to uh, pay my tithe. I need to uh, help my neighbor. I need to do this. I need to do that. Look, it's more than just a box to check off. It's cold water. It's bringing the guy who's sweating like crazy up here cold water. <laughs> Thanks, Keegan. <laughs> it's a good thing not many people in front of me. They'd be getting baptized all over here. <laughs> yeah, that's gross. <laughs> But for whatever reason, 
Jesus kind of slams on the brakes here. He says, not so fast. He said, look, Ephesians, don't, don't start high-fiving each other. No fist bumps because I got something really heavy I got to share with you. And the fact of the matter is, just like I said earlier, Jesus was talking to us, and he's exhorting us for our good works and our toils. He's exhorting us for discerning uh, false teaching from true teaching. He is exhorting us for enduring hardship. At the same time, we got to take the bad with the good. And Jesus is saying, hey, you've lost your first love. And so what I want to do now is just look a little bit about what does that really mean? And I shouldn't say lost because it's not lost. Okay, it's abandoned. And there's a big difference there. Look, when you lose something, you don't know where to find it, right? I mean, I've lost all kinds. In fact, just the other day, I told my kids, I said, hey, you got to find a remote control for that sound bar. Well, they did. It was just the one I lost two years ago. <laughs> I mean, and then they found another one. So now I got two. But you don't know where to find things when they're lost. But when you leave, when you abandon something, you know exactly where it is. You know exactly how to get there. Leaving, abandoning, is much different than losing. It has a note of sadness contained in it. It's an important distinction between these two. Things can be lost on accident, but abandoning is always intentional. When you leave something, you do know where to find it. Several years ago, we were in New York City, and it was our first trip to the big city there, and it was me and Donna and our four kids, and we found a parking garage, only $40 to park there, so we felt lucky. And so, <laughs> and so we're getting out, we're just excited to get out and explore the city, and as it is, sometimes kids fall asleep in your vehicle, and so as we're getting out of the van, we're locking it up, we're starting to walk away. One, two, three. Hmm. Somebody's missing. <laughs> we had left our youngest in the car. So, and he, he never fails to remind us about it. But we knew where he was because we had left him there. If I abandon my first love, if I'm not clinging to Jesus Christ and living passionately for him, Oh, I know where to find him. I know how to get back to him. He, he's, he's waiting. He, he, he wants me to come back. And, and you know, the thing about God is, sometimes he just gives us enough rope to hang ourselves, right? Just to get down to that slop like the prodigal son. And then you remember. You remember what life was like when you were so passionately in love with Christ, that that's all you could think about. You wanted to be in God's word. You wanted to spend time in prayer. You wanted to fellowship with other believers. You wanted to tell others about the salvation that Jesus offers. That, that, that is being passionately 
clinging to your first love. You know, I said earlier, Christianity, the life of a believer, is not a list of boxes to check off. But Paul does outline for us the qualities of a passionate worshiper of Jesus Christ in the book of Romans chapter 12. Now, there are several verses. I'm not going to read through these verses, but I am just going to summarize what I think these verses say, that you might see these traits in a person who has not lost their first love. You might see these traits in a person that is passionately clinging to to their Savior. Verse 9, it says, We are to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. This is Romans 12. In verse 10, it says a passionate follower of Jesus Christ loves other believers. Verse 11, it says we fervently serve the Lord, not when it's convenient for us, not because it doesn't cost us anything. We fervently serve the Lord. Verse 12 says we pray constantly. Verse 13, we generously help our fellow believers. You know, I was really introduced to generosity you know, throughout my life, but I tell you, there's something about this body of believers here that has embraced generosity and, and squeezed it, and it's just pouring out all over everybody. So, you know, I commend this group for their generosity. Verse 14, I don't like this one. We bless our enemies. We'll just let that go, but you know what it's talking about. <laughs> Verse 15, we empathize with others. Verse 16, we do not show favoritism. By the way, empathize and sympathize is two different things. When you're showing sympathy, you're feeling bad for someone. When you empathize, you are feeling bad with someone, right? Verse uh, 17, we live honorably. Verse 18, we live peacefully. Verse 19, we trust God to fight our battles. That helps us to bless our enemies. Verse 20, we win over people with love. Verse 21, a passionate follower of Jesus Christ lives to do good. And again, this is not a list of boxes that we're trying to check off and say, look at me. What a good Christian I am. But this is, these are traits, these are behaviors that if we are holding on to our first love, if we have not abandoned our first love, these, these are going to be, they're, they're just going to, they're going to be produced. They're going to show up. We, we can't help but to exhibit these behaviors when we're holding on to Christ. Do we always accomplish these things? No. You know, we're, we're still bound up in this fleshly body. We fail from time to time, but a believer who has not abandoned the love they had at first will exhibit these qualities more often than not. You know, in any relationship, that passion can ebb and flow. Whether it's a dating relationship, a marriage relationship, the way you feel about your job, there are, there are seasons we go through. You know, there are times that, you know, we're on fire, we're exhilarated. There are other times maybe that we're just tired. Okay, but the, with the church of Ephesus, it, it seems like they were so focused on am I doing the right things and am I believing the right things that they forgot about their passion for Jesus Christ himself and loving him. All right, so we had a commendation, we had a condemnation, 
And now verse 5, we're going to have the change that Jesus wants to see. Look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, so here's, here's the consequences. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You know, the fourth behavior we see of a person who clings to their first love of Christ is that we repent of our sin. The first step that this church in Ephesus needed to do in order to not lose that influence, to not lose that lampstand, is to repent. And the first step in repenting is remembering. Jesus tells them, remember. The first word he says in verse 5, remember from where you have fallen. Remember how you used to love being with me in prayer. Remember how you used to love reading about the scriptures. Remember how you used to love being with other believers. Love, remember, remember, remember. He said you need to remember if you're going to repent. You know, we mentioned earlier the, the prodigal son. When he was eating with the pigs, he remembered what life was like back home, and that led him to that journey of repentance. And we know how that story ends his father accepts him, throws a party, and helps him to live a passionate life once again. Jesus tells the church in Ephesus to repent. Look, that's a command. It's not a request. It's not a suggestion. It is an expectation. He's not telling them to feel sorry. He's not saying, hey, look, uh, guys, uh, you should feel bad about this. You know, I want to see some tears of remorse. No, it's not about feeling sorry. He's not asking them to be remorseful. He's telling them to stop what they're doing and turn 180 degrees and go the other way. That's what repentance is all about. It's agreeing with God, saying that, you know what, I remember the way it used to be. God, I agree with you. I'm not there anymore is taking that, that path that goes the other way and walking back in the direction that we need to go. It is a crucial command to effect a change of attitude and behavior. You know, Paul teaches us that repentance is a product of, of godly grief. Look at 2 Corinthians 7.10. It says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Well, what's worldly grief? Well, worldly grief is getting caught cheating on a test in class and bawling your eyes out about it, hoping that the teacher's going to have some pity. Of course, we know that's never going to happen at Louisville's Spanish class. <laughs> worldly grief is sorrow over being caught in your sin. Godly grief produces repentance. It's sorrow over having offended your creator and your savior. You know, being sorry doesn't necessarily produce any change in behavior. But godly grief, you know, think about what Jesus talked about on the Sermon on the Mount, where he said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That's mourning over your sin. You know, and when we mourn our sin, when we grieve our sin, when we have that 
just that recognition that I have offended my God, Jesus promises us that we will be comforted and we will repent. Revelation 2.5, again, it says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. And then it says, he gives them a new charge. Do the works you did at first. Go back and remember what you were doing for me. Go back and remember how you loved me. Go back and remember what it felt when you were new in me. And then it says, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from this place unless you repent. You know, I'm 57 years old, not getting any younger. And sometimes one of the things I think about with uh, uh, life is, have I really been the influence that uh, I, I need to be on my family, my students, my friends, my teams, whatever? Have I taken advantage of the opportunities to influence other people in a way for the kingdom of God? Or is God saying, look, Rod, I'm, I'm a half an inch away from taking that lampstand away. Yeah, I don't want that to happen. And the way that I keep that from happening is I reignite, I cling to that first love. And, you know, there are times, you know, that I have abandoned that and, and get uh, caught up in problems and other things and, and let that stuff squish out uh, that first love. But, you know, God says, look, I am faithful, and I, will, and I am just, and I will forgive you of your sins if you confess them to me. And God is faithful and just, and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And we'll repent from that straying away, just like the prodigal son. Then he's there to walk us back, and he's saying, look, I want you to experience the fullness of my love again, because that is what is going to make a difference. Jesus is saying, return to the basics. Remember how you were when you first asked me into your life. So Jesus is trying to say, look, keep the main thing the main thing. And again, he adds a warning. He's telling the church in Ephesus. He's telling the church of America. He's saying, look, if not, I'm going to remove your lampstand from this place. And how many churches across America have we seen in the name of being relevant have lost all relevancy altogether because they have abandoned this book here and they have abandoned truth and they have abandoned their first love of Christ. So the warning to the church not only applies to that body of believers but it applies to us as individuals as well. Have I abandoned my first love? Has my worship become routine and lifeless? Has my passion for Christ bled out? Where do I need to repent? You know, David said, show me, O Lord. Open my heart up. Show me where, where my darkness is. Show me where I need to repent. And we need to pray that prayer also to God, that he would show us exactly as he did to the uh, Ephesians here, where it is that he desires for us to change. So before Jesus closes his letter to the Ephesians, you know, it's almost like maybe, oh boy, I really 
you know, slap those guys upside the head. I better give them a little bit more commendation here just so they don't feel too bad. Look at verse six. It says, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And so the fifth behavior we see when we cling to our first love, we pursue truth. Now, we don't know a lot about this group, the Nicolaitans, okay? But what we do know, it seems like they practiced an unrestrained indulgence. You know, they've been linked to the followers of Balaam, a pagan sect known for kind of luring believers uh, away from their faith. And they, they are trying to infiltrate this church in Ephesus. And obviously, the Ephesians have said, no, we're not going to let that happen. The Nicolaitans were known as a people who compromised their faith. You know, they wanted to fit in with the cultural norms around them. And again, we see that over and over and over again today. You know, people want to define truth according to their own understanding, their own experiences, and their own sense of morality. You'll have people tell you, look, there's no such thing as objective truth. And if anybody ever says that to you, the first question you ought to say is, is that true? <laughs> Watch them trip over their tongue because they won't be able to answer that. You know, uh, we, we face similar choices today. Sometimes people want to bend truth so it conforms to the cultural standards. They want to bend truth so they don't offend people. They want to bend truth so that they're inclusive. Listen, the Bible is inclusive. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, whoever, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You know, like the church of Ephesus, we need to resist the Nicolaitans of today in their attempts to drag with us with them into acts of idolatry and immorality. Well, let's look at the last verse here, then we'll kind of land this airplane. Verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear. You know what he's saying there? He said, hey, listen up. This is, this is his call. This is his attention getter. And it's not just to the church in Ephesus because it's written in black and white and we're reading it. God is saying to us, hey, Minerva, listen up here. It says, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The last behavior here that we see when we cling to our first love is that we have a future with our Savior. It is a promise that Jesus himself guarantees. We conquer. 1 John chapter 5 says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, conquers the world. It says this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Don't be mistaken. Our conquering is merely allowing our faith to fuel us. Jesus Christ did all the conquering necessary on the cross, and when he rose again from the grave three days later, Christ conquered death, he conquered the grave, he conquered Satan, he conquered hell on our behalf. And so how do we conquer? Simply putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, 
who has already done the conquering. Verse 7 is telling us that by believing in Jesus Christ, acknowledging that he is the Son of God, putting your faith and trust in him alone, asking for and receiving his forgiveness, that is a recipe for becoming a conqueror. We conquer without doing anything. We simply need to believe, follow, and make him our first love. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more sermons like this, visit us online at gracechapel.cc.